giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel. And I'm your other host, Lindsay Christensen. And we're joined again by Ticometrics founder. Welcome back, Alistair. Hi. Hello, everybody. So, Alistair, um, this month we're talking with all the founders uh, about fundraising. And I'm curious, how familiar were you with fundraising uh, and startups before launching Takeometrics, given your prior experiences? Yes, I did have some experience, actually. And uh, Chad, I think when I first met you and uh, learned about ThoughtBot, it would have been circa 2006. Mm-hmm. And we had developed a, or I had developed a, a fitness community website. At the time, the technology was Merb, which ended up becoming one of the newer Rails frameworks. And I actually moved out to San Francisco to live there uh, with the goal of raising some capital for that project and uh, didn't actually succeed doing that. So I've had my fair share of, uh, let's put it this way, failures in, in that department. Had you raised angel money for Trainio? We hadn't, no, just for context. No. I, I'd graduated from college a year before that. It was really, really early on. I met some in, really amazing entrepreneurs along the way. I'd actually emailed Mark Zuckerberg to work on it, who responded while we were in college and said, hey, sounds cool, but I'm busy working on something, and that was Facebook. So <laughs> um, it's, had, it's, it's really interesting thinking back to that time period, but super early, no funding. Wait. Did you know about Facebook? What year are we talking about? Well, they used definitely used to be in the URL. You could see what user number you were. Um, I think I was user 1100 and something uh, at the time for Facebook from the beginning. So Mark was in Kirkland House, which was the same college dorm that I was in. And uh, I didn't actually end up meeting him. But one of my friends who went to same high school as him said hey there's this really smart kid i hear you're trying to build this fitness community you should go and ping him and that's what i did and he said he was busy working on something so so yeah it was very early on and i remember it first coming out and having to sign up with our harvard email address that is too funny yeah so that that experience of trying to fundraise and not uh, being successful with it what did you learn then that you applied to take a metrics? It's a really tough one. You know, I, I'm definitely going to try my best to articulate and share my experiences, but I, I just don't think that there's a great playbook. It's such a hard endeavor to repeat for, for any entrepreneur. Um, that's my experience. For example, with Trainio, I did learn, got some you know great experience. I remember one of the, the best meetings was meeting in Sequoia Capital's office and meeting a really top VC and I was just on my own in the, in the waiting room office and, and just being so intimidated by looking at the, uh, I think they had these, um, IPO sort of placards or, or, you know, certificate type things on the wall. And you're looking at all these incredible companies on Sand Hill road, you know, you've sort of read about it and then going into these meetings. And I, if you think back what I was doing, I was literally going in there on my own without really much data or much uh, proof. But it's not that different now, to be honest with you, in the sense that it's a very hard activity to sort of replicate because it is human. It is unpredictable. And I I think it's very hard for an entrepreneur. Um, You know, you tend to be really focused on operations 
and you know then you have to carve out a certain period of time to to meet strangers or or maybe people that you've heard of or they've heard about you and you have to pretty much convince them that you know you've got this big plan so you know i still find it really hard today but i I think it's just learning along the way Uh, it's definitely easier now with more traction and you know just a really fascinating part of and a really required part of scaling scaling a company i think Mm -hmm. so not having raised money when you were fundraising before what round of funding were you trying to raise well, to be honest, what happened was, you know, we launched the website, we were featured on TechCrunch and then on the homepage of dig.com. So it just kind of dates how how, mm-hmm. how far back this was. And you had bootstrapped got, that originally? We had bootstrapped, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'd actually, and this is sort of way back in tying all the things together because I built the fitness website as a complement to selling the products on Amazon and mm-hmm. our .com website. And I actually met the founders of Fitbit at the time. And the idea was, okay, I wanted to take a software complement to, to hardware. And that's how the, the, the company was born. So I was sort of taking the profits from the e-commerce business and funneling them into this uh, community website. And it was an era where Facebook had got a lot of traction and there were many vertical community type websites that appeared and i remember actually emailing the twitter founders who had just got set up shop in san francisco and said hey guys you know would you like to do a partnership to sort of connect with uh, health and fitness users and then there was a website called dogster which was like a social network for, for dogs and dog owners and it, it was sort of a really interesting era but we we had some traction and I just wanted to just try. I just wanted to go out there and see what it was like. I graduated from college and I uh, felt like we had got some user traction. I think we had 15,000 free users, not paying users, very quickly and just went out and you know tried to see what people think. I did, really didn't have a plan. I didn't have that much to lose. And I'd never lived anywhere in the US other than Boston. Um, so just you know decided to head out west and see what it was all about. Yeah, you mentioned moving to San Francisco to raise money. How important is geography to fundraising? I don't think it's important at all, really, uh, at this point, especially, you know, as we, as we are, you know, on, on the uh, podcast today and uh, everything's fully remote. But there's something about, I think, at that age, I, you know, I was at just wanting to try and have a new experience you know, you, you sort of at that time of Silicon Valley, of course, uh, was, you know, a sort of a huge hotbed and it's been hotter every sort of decade since. And I just wanted to try and I did interact with, you know, some of the folks who were part of the, you know, first Facebook developments. And, you know, I'd met uh, Drew Houston, actually, who was said to me, hey, I'm working on this SAT test prep thing, but I've got this software to download my photos. You know, do you want to check it out? And that was Dropbox. So I hung out with Drew Houston in San Francisco as well. It was just him and Arash in his apartment. So I think there was this sort of sense that, you know, just saw these businesses. Um, I, I wouldn't go as far to say by any means that, you know, I'm a peer of Zuckerberg or Drew Houston or anything like that. But, you know, people I'd interacted with, you know, went out West and were really successful. And I was sort of like, well, why don't I just try that as well? Mm-hmm. But in you know hindsight, to answer your question, with Sakeometrics, for example, and there's some interesting components of how we raise money that relate to geography. 
but I wouldn't say, you know, physically moving to San Francisco or anything like that is required. But it is, it is extremely unscientific. So I just think it's hard to create a perfect playbook for these types of things. So can you walk us through the fundraising that you have done for Takeometrics? How did you get started? You've touched on it a little bit in terms of bootstrapping it from your e-commerce business before, mm-hmm. but at what point did you bring in external money? Sure. Having sold uh, the e-commerce business and sold Trainio, had a little bit more capital and I really wanted to retain and grow the business organically. And this is Takeometrics. It was quite late in our life cycle relatively you know we did our seed round which was a convertible note when we were at least three million in arr and it had a well-established office um you know a team of folks we'd we'd work with actually uh, engaged with thoughtbot for over a year to help us develop some of the technology further um so it's pretty far along and I was lucky to do that, but it did start to create a really serious amount of risk. You know, when you're sort of wiring nearly hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, of your personal money into the company to fund it, I think that started to change and I started to really recognize the need for funding. So we had a lot of inbound interest, but failure. So I think when we got the inbound interest, got really close to some good conversations and there there was a lot of pushback on, you know, where's the team? How big can this get? But I I really listened to that. There's one particular meeting that I won't name the specific VC, really top tier VC name in Boston, very experienced partner that's invested in some huge successes, IPO successes. He really liked the idea and really felt interested and intrigued, I think, by my background but ultimately ended up passing on the basis of there not being a team. And that created a level of sort of determination, I think, on my side to say, okay, I'm going to go out and build a team. I'm going to keep investing in this myself, and then I'm going to come back. And then we did all those things, went back to the same VC, and he said, well, X, Y, Z, other problem. And then there was just continual failure. But what actually ended up happening, and this actually might relate to Lindsay's comment on geography, You know, the actual story is I ended up meeting someone who became a friend who was a professor of econometrics at Boston College. And he was just really fascinated by the mathematics that we were doing with Takeometrics and the pricing and the attribution around advertising and and actually the, the real heart of the problem, less from the finance side. And he introduced me to Dr. Jerry Hausman, who's the head of econometrics at MIT, a guy that's you know world famous, sort of shortlisted for Nobel Prize in the field of econometrics, and it was so incredible to have that meeting with Jerry because Jerry looked at us so differently. He just felt a tremendous passion for what we were doing, and he just said, "Look, I want to be uh, an, an investor, and I want to be a scientific advisor to you." And I've built a great relationship with him. And, and I think that changed everything. So it, was, it would be very difficult to replicate that. Really not a financial investor. And it's hard to, to figure out how could you create a playbook for, me, for meeting someone like Jerry. But that, that was a really landmark moment for Takeometrics and pretty much unscripted. And so did you couple his strong interest in investment and him signing on as scientific advisor to attract other investors? into a round? Well, what actually ended up happening after Jerry got on board, um, I remember the meeting really well. 
you know, if Jerry listens to this at some point, he'll be fine with it, I'm sure. But I remember being being quite nervous about meeting him because he's done some incredible things. Um, you know, one of his students is Ben Bernanke, for example. So, you know, just thinking about someone in academia that's so well respected. And he came into our office in the Seaport area of Boston. And I just told him my story of coming to the US and starting a dorm room e-commerce business and studying economics and really all the things that have, have changed with e-commerce and advertising and, and inventory and pricing are all, all blended together. So it, it created this, I think, really interesting level of excitement from him. He said, I'll invest, but you know, you should go and talk to my buddies over at a hedge fund in Boston. These are these aren't VC folks. These are, you know, very established value investors. But it it was because of the interest from Jerry that we were able to get that going. And we had seven of the partners of one of the world's top hedge funds invest. And then I think that was powerful because that sent a signal to actually some of the VCs that, you know, we were uh widely regarded or regarded from really smart folks. That was the story of our convertible note that that started the investment at the beginning of 2018. Now we're in a slightly different position where we're going a more traditional route. You know, we did our Series A in Q4 of 2018. That was a, a really important landmark. But I mean, I've got a lot to learn. I mean, there's the really bizarre thing is you only do it a few times. You know, unlike running a business or developing software or, you know, operating a company, which is all about consistency and repeatability and and a process and, you know, values and culture and all of the things that we've been talking about on the, on these podcasts, you're only going to do it about four or five times, hopefully, depending on how many companies you start. And it's a, it's a weird activity. It hinges on so much but you're kind of a novice at it. Um, so when you said, let's talk about fundraising, I was like, okay, but uh, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up and seeing a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. It's pretty great. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash giantrobots and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Once again, thanks to Scout APM for sponsoring today's episode. So the first round was $10 million. In our press release, it says $10 million, but there was Mm -hmm. three in a convertible note from the high net worth individuals, including Jerry, and then an actual priced Series A round in Q4 of 2018. So that combines to approximately 10 million. And how did you approach the amount of money? Was it looking at your burn rate, looking at what you wanted to do? Was it a guess? <laughs> like how how yeah. did you approach that? Well, I think that's why doing the $3 million convertible note was important because it, I mean, it's still a very large amount of money and a very significant amount of money, but we had already got to a pretty sizable run rate. So the business was generating 
and growing very quickly, you know, 3 million in ARR at that point from nothing. And it felt like not a ridiculously high valuation. We didn't create a board at the time. So it was a really nice way of working with people who could validate the space that we're in and show that we were doing something, you know, what we think is world-changing and get some fuel going. So it, it was a pretty conservative start. It's not like we went out with no product or very little revenue. We, we'd gone quite far along for that $3 million. And I think at the time, the goal, which it's always been actually, has been to take the money, calibrate the burn rates to a point where you can grow the business and then reach a break-even point or a point where you don't have to raise more money and then start to try and raise the next round. So that's always been a philosophy of mine. Get some capital in, you know, obviously you have to spend the money to create the acceleration, but build a business plan where that gap actually starts to get smaller and smaller. So you can go into the next VC round, which is of course very unpredictable, as I keep saying, and, and very hard to replicate and say, look, you know, we don't actually need to, you know, raise capital or we're going to raise money. And that's actually the narrative that I used at the time. It was like, we were going to raise money when we reached 10 million in ARR, is what I said. So we came off the convertible note with 3 million. And then we started talking to folks and said, you know, we're heads down right now. We're growing really quickly. You know, things are going well. We're going to raise uh, when we get to double digit ARR. because we think that that's a big milestone. And I think the strategy behind that was the you know, VCs would come back and say, oh, that's really interesting. When do you think you'll get to 10 million in ARR? And then we would say, okay, well, we think it's going to be you know, Q1 of 2019 or something like that. And then that creates that level of control because you don't have to raise the money. I think that's a lot better than going to them to say, or any investor and saying, look, we really, really need the money to keep going. So I've always tried to create that level of optionality for the good of our stakeholders and the company. How is raising from the hedge fund different from a VC in terms of what they're expecting on return and their involvement in the company? The hardest part about the fundraising, I think, or one of the hardest parts about the fundraising is just the preconceived notions of the folks on the other side of the table. So two years ago, it was, you know, where's your team? Uh, can Amazon do what you're doing? Show X, Y, Z things. And every time it's a new challenge and you're trying to battle a new narrative at each stage. So the great thing about working with Jerry and the hedge fund folks is, you know, it's a relatively small investment for them and something where they believed in passion and, and ultimately investing in the idea and the people. I think it's a sort of a bet at that time based off promise versus proof. And that's the hardest thing at every stage is you're trying to, you know, as the entrepreneur, you're trying to get credit for the promise and the VC is going to be focused on or the investor is going to focus on, on the proof. I don't think Jerry or the hedge fund's focus was really the proof so much. It wasn't like they were asking to look at the cohort analysis of all the churn rates in you know 2018 because they were so focused on is the future of retail going to look like this and that's been the really frustrating part for me actually because 
you know, as we've really thought through Taking Metrics' vision to build an optimization platform for all of the channels, which is going to be where all of the transactions happen, we've always had this vision. I think it's trying to convince folks of that. And especially with SaaS investing, the valuations are so high because the VCs have such a strong playbook themselves. They have struck so many metrics that they want to look at. And all of those metrics are focused on proof. So, you know, you're you're in this really interesting stage. For example, last year, you know, we started to have some interesting series B discussions. And the big question was, well, show us the data and also question of whether you can go multi-channel or not. And we said, well, look, we're about to do this project with Walmart. We're about to launch with Walmart. And then the whole conversation is about are we going to give you credit for that happening? You know, what will be the valuation if Walmart happens versus what's happened in the past? So it is fascinating looking at some of these incredible companies or, or maybe even, and I'm talking sort of broadly in, in just, you know, reading the news or TechCrunch or wherever it might be, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, it can be very intimidating, you know, hearing about these entrepreneurs that appear to be so good at fundraising, selling the future, if you just look at like, you know, what happened with a WeWork or Bird Scooters or as an example, how did they raise, uh, you know, at a billion dollars or multi-billion in the case of WeWork when you're being asked, you know, what's your churn characteristics over the last three to four months? And, you know, that's the part I think that slightly conflicts with some of the things that are really important to run a business. It's a new muscle that you need to create. And it's a real challenge, right? I think for a lot of entrepreneurs and you know myself included. So when you're fundraising, how much time does it take up? Well, what I've learned is it's sort of always on, you know, after going down the series A path. And that's one thing I'll say is, you know, once you start to raise capital and you create a structure around expectations of, of growth, you know, there is that concept of either you're going to grow very, very quickly and organically or you're going to need to raise more capital if you believe that you're a company that can scale fast enough to meet your expectations. And, you know, we've been focused on doubling the business every year, which we've done. So we felt like raising capital is important to do that, to, to build out the technology at the same time as growing. So sort of coming back to your question in terms of taking time, over the last two years, I've spent more time knowing that that path is just set and trying to do a job as a CEO. And even if you look at my time spent and trying to map out each quarter, how much my time is is spent around the board and fundraising, you know, just being really careful and understanding that that's an always on activity. You're always trying to build that pipeline because you know, in the next 18 to 24 months, unless you have tremendous organic growth, you're probably going to need to, you know, raise another round but at the same time doing what I said earlier, which is not betting only on that to keep the business alive, not betting only on that to be the only plan. There should always be a plan B. Ideal plan B is the strongest plan is to have your own organic growth and to not need any investors. But you're sort of constantly hedging. So I, I've tried to and recognize that I'm constantly doing that. When you're actually in the middle of the fundraising, I've heard you know, various feedback from other entrepreneurs and CEOs that sort of takes up everything. I don't get that sort of overwhelming sense that it's, you know, the quote, most intense period or anything like that. I I think it's just 
a very uncertain period where you can get frustrated, the mental stress is the hardest part, not the actual time. The time itself doesn't feel that much. It's the sort of the uncertainty and the, I guess, the sort of binary nature of it. Um, it's sort of like you're, you're either going to get an offer or you're not. Tell me more about the investor's playbook. So you said, especially that early first round from VC, they took a positive signal from you getting the hedge mm -hmm. fund. What other signals are they looking for early on? I think from my shoes, from what I can see, there's so many different types of investor. I don't really have a great sort of perspective to answer that there's one particular type. Well, you mentioned that team was feedback that you got. Sure. Does that mean that, you know, it was mostly you solo in a leadership position and there wasn't a leadership team? I think that's key. I mean, yes. So if you're talking about where I was before getting any funding, I mean, we're uninvestable when you look at it at that point. And, you know, there was truth in that, which is why I went out and, you know, built a new team and sort of fired myself from product and actually ended up engaging with ThoughtBot at one point. So I think all of that's true. I think, you know, there are key prerequisites. Yes, they're definitely going to look at team. They're going to look at the size of the potential market. They're going to look at your growth rates, the competition, the IP. I feel like a lot of the stuff, though, if anyone's listening to this, I mean, that's just pretty obvious. I mean, you can Google, you know, what's in an average pitch deck and they're going to ask, those are just the slides <laughs> and, you know, huge market, you know, we're going to solve this problem uniquely. We've got a great team. I think the tough part is once you've got all of that and you actually do have all of the, those things, which we do, why are you still getting rejected and trying to figure out what's going wrong because that's the toughest thing i mean even if you talk to some of the the most incredible entrepreneurs uh, one of our advisors and a close friend of mine is um, the founder of airbnb nathan and just listening to how many times he got rejected i mean he was no vc wanted to touch it because all the vc stayed in the four seasons with their you know wives and families and it's sort of like a stigma like how could you possibly ever invest in a company that let, would let people sleep in your house like that's crazy. And so you had all of those elements, team, scale, but why were they passing? And that's the hardest part to figure out because, you know, there really isn't a great answer for it a lot of the time. I think you try very hard as an entrepreneur to self-diagnose, you know, what could I have done better or what could, and, and then it comes down to almost like a law of numbers and luck, serendipity and so on. Um, at least that's what I'm finding. Let me tell you about today's sponsor, FusionAuth. FusionAuth provides authentication, authorization, and user management for any application. It's a complete identity and access management tool that saves your team time and resources. Drop in FusionAuth and you can easily add support for complex standards like OAuth, OpenID Connect, and SAML. Need application login features or complex compliance requirements managed? FusionAuth makes that simple too. It's built for devs to deploy anywhere and integrate in minutes, and it scales to hundreds of millions of users. Plus, and this is the best part, it's free forever. Seriously, try today and they'll even send you a free t-shirt. If you're looking for more features like breach password detection, advanced registration forms, LDAP integration, and support with guaranteed response times, check out FusionAuth's paid editions. For a limited time, they're offering Giant Robots listeners 25% off using promo code GIANTROBOTS. Visit FusionAuth.io slash podcast to learn more. Thanks very much to FusionAuth for sponsoring today's episode.
And you also mentioned it didn't really click until you found investors that believed the same thing as you about what the world was going to do. Yes, and that's the case. But what's so fascinating is every time you do it, you have the same problem. So, you know, <laughs> yes, you, you get the round or whatever that round was, and then that becomes, in your mind, ancient history because you're on the next tier. Maybe it's similar to sort of being a professional athlete, getting from high school to college, but you don't really diagnose, spend much of your time thinking about like, how did I get from high school varsity team to college if you're trying to get into the MBA as an example. So every tier you're in, it just becomes harder to validate. I mean, it makes sense because your valuation's gone up and the bar's higher. Yeah, or almost like a sports team that wins a season, you start the new season over again. Yeah, it is like that. I mean, you're like, well, I did this and you did all these things. Even with tremendous traction, I think the thing that I tell myself, though, is how much harder it was back then. So this may be coming full circle to the whole conversation here. It's like, what did I learn? I mean, holistically, I've learned a lot and you can't really substitute it. I mean, it's all of those rejections. I remember with Trainio once, I was reading about how difficult it is to get a VC partner to have a meeting. And somehow I got a meeting with a partner and I was in Boston and hadn't yet moved to San Francisco. So I, I just flew all the way to San Francisco because he said he wanted to meet me at a restaurant. And then I got all the way there. I was really well prepared and I couldn't find the guy and he was late. And then he just said, well, what are you here for? And I'm like, well, you just told me to fly across the country. I'm here. And then I walked to a Starbucks, I remember with him. And he just basically drank a drink and said, like, you know, how can I help you? So it's just those levels of disappointments, which I wouldn't do again. I wouldn't do that again. I would never do that now. How can you get that feeling unless that's happened to you? So when you put all of these things together, it does help and make you stronger for the next round, that next season. But I don't know, maybe it's a personality of mine, but like, you know, every time it comes up, I find it difficult because I'm, I'm sort of thinking to myself, it's going to be, we've done so much. We've done everything. We've doubled the business size. We've done multi-channel. We've proven this. We've done that. And then you just get rejected nine times out of 10. The thing that I found that's really important though, is actually understanding how VCs work. And I don't think I, I knew that much about that until quite recently. So, you know, if you think about the stage you're at, at like a series B or series C, I mean, you're really talking about generally larger sums of money. So the funds are going to be larger. So there's almost an internal dynamic where the partners might only do one or two deals a year. And they're going to be rejecting on average, you know, 95% of everything that they look at. So it just feels tough in a situation where you're being rejected that many times, but that's what they're doing all the time on the other side of the table. So to them, it just feels like another meeting, another sort of regular occurrence. For you as the entrepreneur, it's, it's a big bet. It's like a chance to change you know, your company. And for the whole company, you feel as the founder and CEO that there's a big responsibility to get this thing done. But from the VC standpoint, it's just another day of rejecting people because that's on average what they do. <laughs> Have you raised a Series B? Well, we raised a small bridge round, uh, mm -hmm. well, not a small bridge round, quite a large bridge round actually at the beginning of this year, which was super fortunate as you think about the COVID timing. And, you know, we're, we're going to be raising our Series B soon. You know, we, we had some good discussions last year about Series B. 
went back to the drawing board to some extent because we just felt like it wasn't quite resonating. I think, you know, at the current time, there's so many good things that are happening with e-commerce and there's a lot of interest. I mean, that's another strange thing. You can appear really hot and you can actually be sort of overconfident because of the level of interest. But then when you really get down to the brass tacks and you start talking about valuation and start talking about metrics and data and, you know, how, how are you really performing? That can be a tough thing because, you know, taking metrics at this point, it is on the radar. We do get a lot of inbound interest, but, you know, I've learned that that doesn't mean anything. I suppose if you go back to my story of just getting a partner meeting and thinking that that was a reason to fly across the country, you know, my mindset has changed. Um, <laughs> now it's a case of, you know, a lot of people pinging us. It depends on how you look at and, and frame these types of challenges. I think, as as I said earlier, like a, a creator and a product person, you want to have a formula to build. It's really hard to build this type of transient relationship with strangers who actually might sit on your board and control your company, which is another whole whole different dynamic, which is quite odd. So at this stage of your company, how much do you think about exit or exit strategies? You mentioned IPOing a few different times in the context of meeting with VCs and that kind of thing. Does that factor into your what you're thinking about on a regular basis at all? Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I'll, I'll relate this to sort of the personal side of things. I mean, last year, we did get two acquisition offers that would have been life-changing, you know, very large sums of money in, in context of anything that we've I've ever done, but I chose not to do it. And I think from the personal side, you know, I feel really fortunate. You know, I've got two young daughters and fortunate, you know, to have been able to own a house living in, in a very comfortable setup right now, which wasn't the case when I first came to the US. I mean, I came with two bags and $800 and did dorm room cleaning at Harvard to pay for textbooks, which is how I started the e-commerce stuff. So I, I feel like my worst case scenario is so great right now that I've sort of thought to myself, well, you know, you've tried this hard, you've worked this long on something really lucky, like getting an email from Amazon saying, hey, do you want to sell on our website in 2003? And you built this business that's growing so quickly. And to sell it out now, for what? What would I even do with money? So I think philosophically... Having a sort of a sense of purpose and stability at home and, you know, not worrying so much about money or just not worrying and having some form of baseline wealth and comfort has allowed me to think bigger, which rejected the offers from last year. If you took me back to 2006, it was a really big deal because I didn't have very much money and I was really sort of, I think I would have done anything. It almost felt like. So that's been a big mindset. And that, and that probably comes with age as well. So I think it's you know going to be different for every entrepreneur. And at this stage, I feel like the goal is so large. I'm really enjoying myself too. I just don't think of this as work. And I really enjoy building the business. I love these challenges. Even in, in the COVID in situation, it's been a feeling of just, you know, this is a time to be a great leader and and build stuff and help entrepreneurs get online and, and sell on Walmart and Amazon. So I'm having a great time and I don't want to sell. So it's actually very natural when I say, can I get more money instead of selling? You know, we had an option to sell the business, as I said last year, instead of selling out completely, why not raise money? Why not use that offer to negotiate for VC money and, you know, create a, a chance to do something bigger? And that's what we're doing. 
How much financial information do you share with the team on a regular basis? For example, when when that offer was coming up and you were thinking about it, did the team at large know about that? I've talked about it in person in on all hands meetings and you know mm-hmm. shared that, that we had a big acquisition offer i mean in terms of the details i mean at that point there's there's some truth in there wasn't right. you know super detail but yes we have been pretty open i think it is part of our culture you know i want to create a business that has an ownership culture and we've given everyone equity so i think it's a huge motivator to say look we're raising capital and we want to go big and we want to ipo and if you see the valuations of what like last week big commerce went public we're in a partnership discussion with them as as one example so you know this all relates to some exciting things that, that i think the team are really motivated about so we've been pretty transparent in terms of other sort of financials i think it is important to be transparent but not not to the point where it creates sort of complicated discussions. So we've talked about things like number of months of, of runway, average burn, those types of things. So that I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I've got the balance perfectly right, but we do tend to be open. And I think that's just to help to, to give the team a sense of ownership because it's, it's one of our values. How did you decide what kind of equity you were going to give to the team or is that something that evolves over time that distribution well i just think there's a philosophy of everyone being an owner and a smaller piece of a bigger pie and that once you've done that it's it's pretty simple to say look everyone gets equity i just think there's no harm in doing that in the beginning i was sort of more closely guarded regarding that but i think that's just a founder decision to say you know look we're all in this together for me, because I actually don't have co-founders with Taken Metrics, you know, my starting position, and I invested so much money myself and got to a certain stage without any funding, it's in my best interest to motivate and drive as much value around that equity and align. Because equity is a really incredible aligner of the goal, right? Like, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything until you get to the end. So let's do that. Let's, let's bet on that. So yeah, it's been important for me to do that. I think in terms of the amounts, you get to a level where you can pretty much figure out a framework for each stage of employee. You can make it quite formulaic. So that's important to do pretty early on because, you know, if if you don't do that, you know, you can end up sort of making pretty bad decisions, which I've seen happen before and maybe made some of those mistakes in the past, but I think you get to a certain stage and you can create like a simple allocation of what each person's level is and what the equity should be. So I know we have just a few minutes left. So uh, since we last talked, has anything exciting happened for the goals for the year that you set out? Or bad. You can tell or us that bad. too. Right. <laughs> uh, no, things have been going really well. I mean, I've been really proud of the team. It's been an exciting evolution. I mean, we've, we've not backed off one bit. I think there is a question of how many people can you hire that you've never met before versus <laughs> going remote from as a team that's got a core energy around being together at one point. As it relates to your goals, one of your goals for the year was really to continue to evolve as a product-led organization. Right. Is that holding up or is that more difficult over time the longer you stay remote and add people to the team who have never been? Or is it easier because you're adding fresh new perspectives who never knew the way that it was before? 
Yeah, I do. I wish you asked me this question in a month or two's time forward looking because we're working on some things that I think will be pretty transformative in that regard. I think there's a sort of a concept here because we want to go so quickly of what you can sort of share vaguely and you can kind of interpret sort of a build or buy strategy. Look, if we want to go really fast and build this optimization platform for hundreds of thousands of sellers on all the best marketplaces, and we want to try and go IPO in the next three years, you know, there is a build or buy mentality and we have some things that we're working on. And I think that's really important because bringing in a new level, um, we talked about it a little bit in the, in the fundraising, right? It's sort of like professional sports, high school, college and pro leagues or whatever analogy or each season. And I think that happens within the company. How do you sort of continually upgrade the team as the CEO? Are you willing to say those things? You know, are you able to scale from 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 and, uh, and up? And um, bringing in incredible new people and new talent that have a different perspective is really important. So I actually think some of the lack of physical office space is actually going to end up really helping us because it's going to restrict us from being stuck in a in a mindset that we're only hiring from the Boston pool. Um, and if we, let's say, acquired a company in a different time zone or even in a different country, would that team have a level playing field? Would they be able to integrate in the same way? And I think now it's a really good chance to do that. So those are sort of some hints at some of the things that we're working on right now. Oh, yeah, a big hint in there. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to revisit it in a couple months yeah for sure <laughs> yeah thanks well alistair I, I know you have to go so thanks as always for stopping in with us and and sharing everything about your fundraising journey with Ticketmetrics and before and um for everyone listening you can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm if you have questions or comments email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm you can find me on twitter at lindsay3d and me on Twitter at CPytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.